And I'll take this opportunity to introduce myself. If you don't know me, my name is Adam Sandwick. I am not the lead pastor, the staff pastor here at Enid MB Church. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here. At our church, we practice the plurality of elders leadership model. What that means is that the men that are currently elders serve as fellow pastor elders with our lead or our staff pastor. Chris said earlier, Gary, who's our permanent interim pastor right now, or full-time interim pastor, he and his wife had an opportunity to get back to where they live permanently and visit some family and some friends. As you know, they've been hard at it for the two months that they've been here, and so hopefully they're getting rest that they need, and will come back to us refreshed, ready to do good ministry work again. Our text today is going to be 1 Timothy 4. So go ahead and turn there. I did also want to say as the elders, as we grow in our conviction of what that means to be elders of a local body of believers, we've been stretched a little more because Scripture calls us as elders to do more pastor-type work. And so you're seeing the fruit of some of that today. Uh, this will not be the most polished sermon you ever heard. Uh, uh, so, But it is Scripture, and I believe in Scripture, so... We get to share it together. 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a hardback black one in front of, in a chair around you or in front of you. It's page 992 in that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we want to make that Bible our gift to you. Uh, we've got several of them around the church. We believe very strongly that the Word of God is living and active, and it's the primary means through which we learn about God and learn from God. So if you don't own your own Bible, please take that with you, read it, and grow with it. We're going to look at all 16 verses today, but before we get started, I wanted to read two verses that I think hold the central message to what we'll be looking at today. We're looking at verses 7 and 8. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness has value for all things, holding promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I've titled the sermon, Discipline Yourself for Godliness. By way of introduction, I want to start with some ground rules. These are some things I want you to think about as we're going through the passage today. First, I want to define discipline. We'll talk a lot about discipline. What is discipline? Discipline is training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character. So discipline is training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character. It's training with a purpose. Discipline is not punishment. Although unfortunately many of us here have either used or heard those terms used interchangeably, discipline as we see it in Scripture always has in mind training and training with a purpose. Today the purpose is godliness. Discipline yourself for godliness. We're going to define godliness. Godliness is character and conduct determined by the principle of love or fear of God in your heart. Character and conduct determined by the principle of love or fear of God in your heart. Character is who you are, how you're known to be. Conduct is how you act, how you behave. John MacArthur has a definition. He says, having the proper attitude and conduct before God in everything. Again, attitude and conduct. How you're known, who you are, how you behave. Godliness today is not salvation. 
right? You can't train yourself for salvation. You can't discipline yourself to become saved. Salvation is a work of God only. We see Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's a work of God. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a gift of God. It might help to think of it in this way, the three tenses of salvation. There's salvation past, salvation present, and salvation future. Salvation past is justification. It's freedom from the penalty of sin. This is a one-time event. You hear somebody say, I was saved at the age of, or I was saved in 1995. That's justification. You've placed your faith in Christ and his, his life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. Je- Jesus says in John 5, 24, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He will not come under judgment. He is passed from death to life. So salvation passed, justification, freedom from the penalty of sin. Salvation present is sanctification. Sanctification just means being set apart, made holy for God. It's freedom from the power of sin. 1 John 4.4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The power of Christ in us is able to overcome the power of sin in the world. Salvation future is glorification. This is a future date. This will not happen in this life. This is when Christ comes again. As 1 Corinthians 15.53 says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Glorification, salvation, future is freedom from sin's presence. So justification, sanctification, glorification. Today we're talking about the sanctification process. If you are alive and you're a believer, you're in the sanctification process. This proce- these three steps are never out of order. We're not sanctified before we're justified We're certainly never glorified before we're justified. Again, we didn't do anything to earn our justification. Nothing I'm talking about today will earn us justification or salvation. But we do have a role to play in our sanctification, discipline. As I was thinking through the message, I came up with a threefold illustration for my personal life. I'm going to need some quiet for my family. Um, I'm a piano player. Ever since I can remember, I've grown up with a piano, lived with a piano, even through college, uh, and now we're married, I have had a, we have a piano. So I can read basic sheet music, know all about the keys, um, I think I can find middle C uh, almost 10 out of 10 times, but I can play the piano. I'm also a guitar player, so this started later in life. I go off to college, and I lived with some guys that could all play the guitar. I thought that'd be a good skill to have. So they started teaching me. I was enjoying it. This was also the early 2000s where if you were a single guy and a Christian, it was mandatory that you played the acoustic guitar, right? Anybody else? Yes. So I even asked my parents for my own guitar for Christmas one year. They got me one. It was great. Uh, Continued to learn. Third, I'm a saxophone player. So you remember in elementary school, you can start, you can join the band. I can remember even before that year that we could join the band. I always wanted to play the saxophone. That's all I could talk about. I stuck with that all through high school. I saw a lot of fruit from that discipline in my life. I'll come back to those illustrations uh, later. But let's look at the text now. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I don't know how your Bible translation breaks it up. I'll read from the ESV. And it breaks it up into three paragraphs, verses 1 through 5. 6 through 10, and 11 through 16. This is going to co- correspond to the outline that you see, the perils of the lack of discipline, 
the purpose of discipline, and the process of discipline. So I'll read the first five verses here. This is Paul. He's writing a letter to his younger friend, Timothy, who's a pastor in the city of Ephesus. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Two types of people I want to point out here that coincide with the perils of the lack of discipline. The first is those that depart from the faith. I'm going to say something here. I'm not an expert in original languages of the Bible. But when I was reading through and studying the passage, a couple things stuck out, and I just wanted to share it because I thought it was of note. The, the Greek verb here in verse 1 is where we get our word apostasy, where it says some will depart from the faith. This is abandonment, or renunciation, or purposeful leaving. This doesn't have in mind people that are tricked away from the faith or unknowingly leave the faith. Um, these are folks that deliberately turn their back on the faith They've been presented with the gospel, they've been introduced to the gospel, and they want nothing to do with it. It does say that they are devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So there is an element of discipline in their lives, but it's not like we've said, discipline yourself for godliness. It's not a purposeful discipline. Uh, It's to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. Real quick, I'll jump down to verse 7. It says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. I think this is saying the same thing. Irreverent, silly myths, this idea of uh, empty talk or vain talk, talk that puffs up the speaker rather than puffs up Christ or glorifies Christ. A couple other uh, cross-references. Paul says in his second letter to Timothy, this is 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. It says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So again, the idea of people that useless talk, empty talk, irreverent talk, it doesn't build up Christ, it builds up themselves. I have another cross-reference here. This is Acts 20, 28 through 30. Paul, returning from his third missionary journey, he calls the elders from the Ephesian church to meet with him in another city to kind of train and teach them. So Timothy, remember, Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus, so First and Second Timothy are written to him while he's pastoring that church. There's a link, I think, he's writing to, or he's speaking in Acts 20 to Ephesian elders, just of the overarching problem that's going on. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So not only do these men turn their back on the faith intentionally, and devote themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, they're also drawing others away, which leads us to our second point. Another peril of the lack of discipline is susceptibility to false doctrine 
false teachers. Doctrine simply means a set of beliefs or a set of teachings. So you see here in verse 2 where he says that those are led astray astray, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So there's a, a, a means for them to be led astray. False doctrine, false teachers. And how? Verse 3, it says, Who forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So this idea of setting up extra rules to make you right before God is always a mark of false teaching. Like, we have Scripture as it's presented. Again, salvation is a work of God by grace, through faith, not of anything we've done ourselves. John MacArthur says it like this, The devising of human means of salvation is a hallmark of all false religion. So anytime there are extra rules that you have to follow or rules that provide salvation, anything added to Christ for salvation is a false teaching. You may say, yeah, I get that. I I know that. Let me bring this home. So last weekend, Lee and I were at home and uh, 48 Hours was showing this special on David Kresh and the Branch Davidian cult. You remember this? I think we just passed the 25th anniversary of the showdown, they called it, or the standoff. And we kind of picked it up at the tail end, and neither of us were really familiar with it. I was pretty young. I don't think Lee was born yet. Um, uh, <laughs> anyways, so we pick it up kind of right when the the, the authorities are storming the compound, then this fire starts. Um, it seems to be unexplained how it started, at least this special. And it just starts burning everything down, the whole compound. Tragically, many people die, folks associated with the cult, young and old. You know, some children didn't have a choice. Well, in the video, they're showing live video, and there's some people that actually escape, run to safety, And one of these guys was a member of the cult. He's allowing himself to be interviewed by 48 hours. He says something that really was haunting. He said, uh, among other things, he said, it'll all be okay because I know that David and many of those who died, David Koresh, the leader, David and many of those who died will return to his second coming. And so I look at Lee and uh, probably with the same first reaction you have is that's obviously false teaching and he's believing a lie and but we start talking it more and more. Like you need to understand, but for the grace of God, like we all would fall victim to similar teachings, false teachings. It may not be as overt as that one, but let me ask, like when, when have you ever said or believed that if you just made X amount of money, then you'd really be happy? Like that's also a false doctrine that if you follow that path, it won't go well for you. When have you said, Oh, if I was just married, then I'd really be happy, or then I could really be effective for God. That's false doctrine and false teaching that doesn't go well for you if you follow that path. When have you thought, if I was just married to that person and not this person, then I'd really be happy? Like, that's false doctrine. That's false teaching that doesn't go well for you if you follow that path. False doctrines, false teachings always touch us in the things that we want to believe. That's the reason we're susceptible to them. These are good things. They could be a good desire But to make a good desire, an ultimate desire is to make it an idol, put it in the place of God in our life. That thing will bring me happiness. That thing will bring me peace. That thing will bring me success. Like, none of that is true. The reason we're susceptible to false doctrines or false teachings is they touch us in the things that we want to believe. Think about it like this. 
my kids, they're not susceptible to eating broccoli, right? That's a battle. Like, that's not something they're susceptible to. They're susceptible to trying to live on cookies and, like, candy. Like, that's what they're susceptible to. So we're susceptible to things that we want to believe or that we want to, to trust in, things that we want. Scripture doesn't leave us alone in how to combat this. Two references, just write these down. Acts 17.11. Paul, he says this in his second missionary journey. They're going around to different cities. They're preaching in synagogues. They're addressing Jews about their well-versed in the Old Testament. He's talking about Jesus Christ fulfilling the Old Testament, being the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. He says in 17.11, Now these Berean Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Well, because they received the word with all eagerness, and they examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. How do we combat a susceptibility to false doctrine, false teaching? We examine the Scriptures. Anything you hear. You hear it here at church. You hear it from a friend. If you hear something on the radio or on the TV, run it through Scripture. Like that's an, it's, it's a foolproof way of examining teachings and doctrine. 1 John 4, the first few verses there, John also says the same thing. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirit. See if they're from God. So we've looked at the peril of the lack of discipline. Now we're going to look at the purpose of discipline. This is verses 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Look how many times in this section or this paragraph, however it breaks up in your Bible, how many times he kind of draws the parallel between physical training and spiritual training. I think this, uh, it's a good analogy because it's something we can all understand against something that may be a little more difficult to understand. The word train, when we read the word train in here, we've said that when we read the word discipline, think of training. When you read the word training, think of exercise. So he says here, you, in verse 6, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith. So being exercised in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed, right? So he's saying, there is a false doctrine out there, the teachings of demons. You've been exercised and trained in the good doctrine. Practice it. Have nothing to do with the irreverent silly myths, right? We talked about irreverent silly myths being empty talk or vain talk, something that builds up the speaker rather than builds up Christ. Rather, train yourself for godliness or exercise godliness or exercise yourself for godliness. Discipline yourself for godliness as, we've, as, I've, con- as I've titled the sermon. Discipline yourself for godliness. Remember, purposeful training, godliness is character, how you're known, and conduct, how you behave as one who loves God. The, in verse 8, he says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness of value in every way. Notice he doesn't say neglect the body, focus only on the spiritual, but he also doesn't equate the body with the spiritual. He says, yeah, yeah, just like you exercise your body, and there's a little bit of value there. Some of your versions, I think that's twofold. I think that's qualitative and quantitative. Qualitative meaning this. Some versions say bodily training has value for a little while, amount of time, right? That's this life only. There's 
nobody, I don't, the scriptures never teach that bodily discipline, bodily training benefits you in heaven. But it does teach you that spiritual disciplines benefit you in heaven. That's where you get this, it holds promise for the present life, also for the life to come. So just as you exercise your bodily, exercise bodily or you train or you discipline, you do that spiritually. Think of, it, think of it this way. Do you spend as much time on spiritual discipline as you do on physical discipline? It doesn't even have to be bodily physical discipline. Think about um, the piano. In the first service, I asked Chris if they could play an offertory. And so Trish Pierpoint played beautiful. And when you hear that, you just can't help but think, like how beautiful that is, but we, how often do we think like the discipline that went into that? doesn't just happen, right? Or how many of you know our own Doug Meyer made this podium, right? I'm not talking about bought it at Ikea and put it together. Like he made it. Like that's impressive. All the woodworking he did, like you see that and you can appreciate discipline in somebody's life. You can see that. But we don't see all the hard work that he's gone into to develop that over time. We just see the end result. Verse 10, so to that, he says, for to this end, godliness, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. Toil and strive has the idea of laboring, strenuous effort. It's a step beyond work. Like it's not something that, that you can kind of ho-hum through. It's we work diligently we discipline ourselves diligently in this area. So godliness is the goal. Let me say here quickly, without a goal, discipline is nothing but self-punishment. Right? The goal is godliness. That's why we spiritually discipline ourselves for godliness. Without a goal, discipline is nothing but self-punishment. Let me step outside of 1 Timothy 4 here to give a couple problems with not pursuing godliness, things that we're all prone to. One is atrophy, spiritual atrophy. Atrophy just is the gradual decline in effectiveness or vigor due to underuse or neglect. Same way that your muscles can atrophy if they're not used. Same way that a piano skill atrophies if it's not used. Same way that whatever your discipline is, if you don't stay with it and persist in it, there's atrophy, less effective. I have a cross-reference for this, 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. Paul writes to the church in 1 Corinthians, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So there's nothing wrong with that. He goes and visits the Corinthian church, establishes the church. All of us start somewhere on our spiritual journey. So it's no shame in beginning with spiritual milk. And then you grow into solid food, using the words he uses here. What's the, ver- what's the word picture there? Who in our lives, who in society needs milk, not solid food? Babies, right? The immature. So you start them out on that and gradually they grow. The problem here. 1 Corinthians was written three plus years after Paul founded that church in Corinth. So he's writing them back and he says, yeah, when I was there, I fed you with milk, not solid food. Well, even now you're still not ready because you're still of the flesh. So 
they're ineffective due to underuse or neglect. We're all prone to spiritual atrophy. Keep your spiritual disciplines sharp in time in the Word, time serving, worshiping. We're also all prone to laziness. Again, outside of 1 Timothy 4, these are Proverbs. Proverbs, you can write down 26. This is chapter 26, verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. I'll read through them really quickly. These are laziness. We're all prone to laziness in our disciplines. Proverbs 26, 13 says, The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. You can just write down excuses. Verse 14, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. A sluggard is just a lazy person. The idea here is somebody, somebody moves but going nowhere, right? A door turning on its hinge. It moves but it goes nowhere. Just like a sluggard or a lazy person on their bed moves but goes nowhere. Verse 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Don't finish what they start. Verse 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who answer sensibly. The problem there is verse 12, same chapter. He says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. That's bleak if you see what else Proverbs has to say about the fool. So somebody that's wise in their own eyes, there's more hope for a fool than for that man. And this says a sluggard thinks he's wiser than seven men. Laziness isn't a lack of desire. It's a deep desire for our own comforts. Proverbs 21.25 says, The desire of the sluggard kills him because his hands refuse to labor. Right? Notice it doesn't say the lack of desire kills him. It says the sluggard's desire kills him. Laziness is not a lack of desire. It's a deep desire for our own comfort. Right, Our own comfort rather than maturing in godliness. We've looked at the peril of the lack of discipline. We've looked at the purpose for discipline. Now the process of discipline. Great. How do we do it? This is verses 11 through 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So we see here a series of imperative commands Paul's giving to Timothy as he's pastoring the church in Ephesus. I think we can draw these out for ourselves. These are commands he says, do these and keep on doing these. First, in verse 12, he says, set the example. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. So be an example. Don't give anyone any reason to speak of you or look down on you condescendingly. But you set the example for it. He gives them specifically speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Be someone that people can look to for how to live. This isn't new language for Paul. He uses this elsewhere. Look in first, you can just write this down. Don't have to turn there. 1 Corinthians 4.16 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. In 4.16 he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. This isn't Paul speaking pridefully. This is Paul speaking the truth. 
All of us imitate a person or a compilation of people in our minds, whether real or imagined. So be very aware who you pattern your life after. The flip side of that is, all of us do have people in our lives that are less spiritually mature than us that we should be able to say to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Don't imitate me because of me and things I do, but imitate me as I imitate Christ. Verse 13, devote yourself. He says, so devote yourself. Devote has this idea of dedicating yourself. You commit your heart. Commit yourself. You can commit resources. You do something at the expense of other things. Verse 15, practice it. Repeated exercise. He also says, immerse yourself in it. Be in the training. Be in the discipline. King James says, meditate here in verse 15. Uh, when you read meditate in Scripture, don't think Eastern meditation, New Age meditation, which has the idea or the goal of emptying yourself. But in Scripture, meditation always has the, the goal of filling yourself. Fill yourself specifically with, Christ, with Scripture, with the Word. Verse 16, he says, monitor yourself. Keep a close watch on yourself. The NIV says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Monitoring yourself has this idea of setting goals and making a plan, right? If you're learning piano, you don't just go and poke around and you learn. You have a teacher. Your teacher would probably give you a plan of action. You start basic and you go. If you're running and you're training for a marathon, you don't just go and wing it. You could. Sometimes it won't go well for you, but you have a plan. You monitor yourself. You kind of gauge how you are by what you've done. So you monitor yourself. Also behind monitoring yourself, there's this idea, know your weaknesses and remove temptations, right? If you're trying to develop a spiritual discipline of daily scripture reading, and you find yourself distracted by your phone because you're checking texts or emails or anything, get rid of it. Remove the temptation. That's not a wise thing to do, is to have a temptation so close to you in that moment. So know your weaknesses and remove temptations as part of monitoring yourself. Verse 16, he also says, persist in this. This is the idea, continue firmly in spite of difficulty, opposition, or failure. Keep it up. Like, do it again. I will, failure, I want to talk about that also. Like, if you're trying a spiritual discipline, or if you're giving yourself to something, and it doesn't go well, or it doesn't go the way you think it should go, make room for God's grace in that. Like, don't think that you're a failure just because you couldn't stay to the plan, or you couldn't do what you thought you needed to do. Again, we're not talking about earning our salvation here. We're talking about growing in godliness. So when it doesn't go the way you think it should, make room for God's grace. Jesus is perfect. We're not. What that means is don't say, I'm no good. I can't. Might as well not try it. There's always a next day. Get up again. If you're trying to do something in the morning, get up the next morning. Or if you're doing something in the evening, read the next evening. Pursue the goal. The goal is godliness. The, not, the goal is not perfection. We will not be perfected in this life, right? That's salvation future. That's glorification. That won't even happen in this life. So persist in it and pursue the goal. Now the rest of the story on my personal illustration, right? The truth is I'm a phony on the piano. I've never pursued the knowledge of actually learning how to play the piano. Even though it is true that I grew up with a piano in my house, always been around the piano, poked around on it, 
and I can read a little bit of sheet music from other disciplines in my life. Uh, like if my daughter, Erin, she's seven years old. She just started piano lessons eight months ago. I've seen her persist, practice, and monitor herself. Like she would make me look ignorant. If she came up here to play a song and I tried to play after her, I would expose myself immediately. Like I still play the same song all these 30 years. Every time I walk by a piano, right, I try to tap out Mary Had a Little Lamb or something. That's not cute if I... Like, I've presented myself as a mature piano player. Nobody would applaud for that, you know. But uh, somebody that's just beginning that, like, we encourage that, right? Keep it up. Keep going. And if that was something that I wanted to give myself wholly to and learn that discipline, I would have to start somewhere. But I can't go around saying that that's how I am. In the same way, a believer can be a faithful churchgoer for decades and yet never mature spiritually because they've never given themselves to spiritual disciplines and growth towards godliness. Guitar. Uh, so I did pursue the guitar when I lived with those guys. And it was fun. I learned. I was learning, learning, learning. But once I moved away from those guys, it just kind of gradually waned over time, right? We go back to atrophy. I just, it just became less effective due to underuse and neglect. Christian life is the same way. We were created to be in relationship with others, especially others who are passionate about pursuing Jesus. We don't rely on those others to discipline ourselves. We discipline ourselves, but just although although the Bible says we're to be with others who spur us on towards love and good deeds, again, we still have to discipline ourselves for godliness and personal growth. But trying to accomplish spiritual growth in isolation, when you remove yourself from others who are spiritually minded, growing believers, that's a hard road. That's a tough road. Saxophone, this is my only musical success story, right? So I can look back on that, and I see the fruits of discipline in that, and I can point to that as an example of how personal discipline does pay off. Um, so for application, These aren't throwaway questions. Think about this. What is your excuse to avoid spiritual disciplines? And we talk about spiritual disciplines. This is a number of things. Scripture reading, Sunday school, or church attendance, gathering with other believers, leading somewhere, serving somewhere, giving. This is all wrapped up in how we grow as believers. What's your excuse to avoid spiritual discipline? How would discipline in your Bible reading make you more godly? Remember, godliness we've defined as conduct and character that is marked by love and fear of God in your heart. How does discipline with your finances make you more godly? How would discipline in your marriage make you more godly? How would discipline in your parenting make you more godly? How would discipline in serving the body of believers make you more godly? Like I said, there's a num- any number of spiritual disciplines that you can go after. Uh, a book that I highly recommend on this, uh, I didn't come prepared with the author's name, but it's called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Uh, and it just kind of it breaks out different spiritual disciplines and different processes and how to, how to grow in those areas in your life. Um, But that's a book that I would recommend on that. But if I, as an elder of EMB, could get you to devote yourself to only one spiritual discipline, it would be the consistent discipline 
it would be the discipline, pardon me, of consistent scripture reading, meditation, and memorization. All others flow out of that. Because it's only through scripture as we see in 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. That you may be complete, equipped for every good work. I ran across a quote by a man named Samuel Chadwick as I was going through this uh, just sermon prep. He was a, uh, an author and a preacher in the late 19th, early 20th century. He says, No man is uneducated who knows the Bible, and no one is wise who is ignorant of its teachings. No man is uneducated who knows the Bible, and no one is wise who is ignorant of its teachings. So in closing... Earlier I said today we're talking about the sanctification stage of the believer, right? Discipline yourself for godliness. What if you aren't a believer? What I said about justification being freedom from the penalty of sin is true. There is a penalty for sin and it's death. That's Romans 6.23. And at one time we were all under that penalty. That's Romans 3.23. We've all sinned. But Jesus Christ paid the penalty with his perfect sinless life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. So I'm talking today about disciplining yourself for godliness. I'm not talking about doing anything that God requires of me in order to be in relationship with him. Disciplining yourself for godliness is a sanctification process. It's because I've seen how pathetic my life is when I insist on doing it my way. And I've also tasted the abundant life he promises when I order my life around his way. Those who have truly tasted both the bitterness of a self-served life and the sweetness of a Christ-served life, know that there's no comparison. In addition to the personal benefit and blessing spiritual discipline is to our lives, there is something even greater. That's God's glory. The more I grow in godliness, the more glory I bring to my Savior, and there's no greater purpose than that. I think we're going to sing that song again. Let me pray real quick, uh, and then I'll come back up and close us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you that you have saved us, Lord, um, from the punishment of sin, the penalty of sin, death. Lord, we've crossed from death to life, not because of anything we've done, but because of what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that as we grow to be more Christ-like, we grow in godliness, Lord, that we see that as uh, our our offering, our spiritual sacrifice, our offering to you. You say that the blood of bulls and goats you don't desire What you want is an obedient life. It's in your name we pray.